words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We can be seated. And today we continue on in a series of sermons from uh, the book of Colossians. And I encourage you to look at page 7 in your bulletin if you want to follow along or in your Bible. It's uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 uh, today. wonder if you saw the, the funeral for Queen Elizabeth that took place on Monday or maybe parts of it. I think it was a very long uh, funeral service. But I was interested to read about it and uh, some of the extravagant ceremony and symbolism that that uh, funeral involved. There were 500, 500 dignitaries from around the world that attended that funeral. Kings, princes, presidents, prime ministers from all over the world to attend the funeral. And then maybe you saw it, I did see this um, on, on the internet, the uh, Navy soldiers, 143 Royal Navy soldiers with ropes drawing the wagon, and on top of this wagon was the coffin, as they led this wagon in processional uh, to Westminster Abbey with the family and others following behind. That was a very sobering and dignified procession. About 143 Navy soldiers were using ropes to draw that wagon. On top of the coffin was her crown, a crown that contains almost 3,000 diamonds sparkling in the sun. Next to the crown was her scepter, an orb, a symbol of the kingdom. And so all this, this uh, elaborate symbolism and ceremony was to reflect something of the greatness of the person and her position and the kingdom. Well, in our passage from Colossians this morning, Paul is reminding us of a greater sovereign, a greater person, a greater kingdom. As he reflects on who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And the purpose of this reflection is found in verse 23. The motivation here is to continue in the faith. We continue in the faith when we, by faith, grasp the greatness of Christ. We'll want to continue with him. And so I just want to talk about the greatness of Christ that we see in this passage. And some people believe that this passage, especially the first uh, section of it, is, is probably a, a hymn because it's written in the original language in sort of poetic, lyrical style. Maybe it's a hymn that the early church was familiar with. But in this, Paul reminds us, first of all, the greatness of Jesus' person, that he is preeminent in everything, it says that he has first place. And, and he is preeminent, first of all, in terms of his relationship to God. It says at verse 15, he is the image of the invisible. 
unshakable God or the icon, that's the word that's used here, the reflection of the invisible God. We cannot see God in this life with our eyes, but we can see God as we look to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, in John 14, one of Jesus' disciples came to him, Philip, and he said, show us the Father, show us God, and it's enough. You ever thought that? If only I could see God, my faith would be secure. My faith would be rock solid. One day our faith will become sight. Now we walk by faith, not by sight. But there is a sense in which we can see God, even now. And that is as we look to Jesus. And, and so Jesus says to Philip in John 14, Philip, how long have you been with me that you would, you would ask me such a question? He says, uh, how can you say, show us the Father, Philip? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. See what Jesus is saying. Philip, you have seen God. We are one. God the Father dwells within me, and I in him. And the words that I say are coming from God, and the works that I do are the works of God. You are seeing God in me. A lot of people have claimed to reveal God, haven't they, throughout human history? A lot of people have claimed to reveal God, and some people have claimed to be God incarnate. But no one has the works to back up that claim like Jesus Christ. The mighty works, the miracles, and the supreme miracle that validates all of his claims, the resurrection of the dead. He's preeminent. He reveals God to us. And, and Paul says in this passage that he is, uh, that in him is the fullness of God. You see that in verse 19? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's not partly God. He's fully God. He is, as we will say in the creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. If you want to know God, look to Jesus. So he's preeminent in terms of his relationship to God. He's preeminent in terms of his relationship to creation. Paul says at the end of that verse, verse 15, you see it there, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. Now, some people will read that, and some groups who do not believe the Orthodox faith, like we believe and confess, they'll say, oh, well, you see there, Jesus is a creature. Jehovah's Witness will say that. It says right here that he was born. So he's a creature. He's not fully God. He's a God, they will say, but he's not the God. He's not the Son of God. He's not fully divine because it says right here, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, you have to read things in context, don't you, because Paul's not going to contradict himself. He just said he's fully God. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. So we have to read things in context. And one of the 
means or definitions of firstborn in the Bible is the firstborn of a family was the prominent one in the family. The firstborn in the family was the one who inherited most of the father's estate. And that's why Paul, that's how Paul is using firstborn here. He is preeminent in creation. He's overall in creation. He's not created, the eternal son of God is not created, he's eternal. But in terms of his status, his standing, he is Lord over creation. For by him all things were created, he goes on to say, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. We talk about God the Father as the creator, and that's true. God is the ultimate source. God the Father, the ultimate source of the universe. But all the members of the Trinity were involved in creation. And uh, Millard Erickson, a theologian, puts it like this. Creation is from the Father, it is through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And he gives this illustration. He talks about the building of a house. But maybe since we're involved in a building program here at the church, we could talk about the building of a church. There are many people involved in the building of the church. We're hoping to expand this building in the springtime next year. Or maybe the summer. But uh, first of all, you have the architect who has the plans. The architect writes up the plans. In a sense, he builds the church through his plans. Then you have the contractor. <laughs> Our brother John Lauer is the contractor. Or that he's going to oversee, make sure this gets done the proper way. You have the architect. You have the contractor. Then you have the carpenters who do the work. Who builds the church? Well, they're all involved in the building of the church. And Millard Erickson makes that point. Something similar can be said about creation. And we don't have time to look at all the scriptures that would connect this all together, but creation is from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all things, he says, are for Christ. Christ is the creator, and all things were created through him, and he says, for him. All creation exists to glorify the Father and the Son. Now, why does this matter? Why does this matter to the Colossians? Why do they need to be reminded of this? And why do we need to be reminded of this? That Jesus is preeminent over all of creation. That he is fully God. Well, they need to be reminded of it because they're tempted to leave Christ and not think that Christ is sufficient for their salvation or Christ is all they need for their spiritual life. And if you look at verse 16, he talks about how Christ is over thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Those were terms for spiritual beings in the first century. Those were terms that people in the first century would have recognized as terms for angels and demons. And in this culture, at this time, in first century, Greco-Roman world and in Judaism, what people did is, is their, their spiritual life was really animated by this. They had to appease those powers. They feared those powers or they tried to gain power from angels or demons. That's what the temple worship was about. That's what astrology was about. 
That's what magic was about in the first century. It was all part of this culture. It was part of the culture the people from Colossae were from. These were Gentiles who had converted to Christianity. And now that they had converted to Christianity, they were tempted to start mixing those pagan spiritual practices with their belief in Christ. And Paul is saying, you don't need to do that. You ought not to do that. Christ is sufficient. We need to hear this today. Even in our culture, there, are, there is a rise in alternative spiritual practices, even among people who call themselves Christians. You have to be on guard against it. You don't need to go to Christians. You don't need to go to astrology. You don't need to practice manifesting. This law of attraction that's so popular in social media today and celebrities and athletes talk about it. I manifested this or that. The idea is that through the law of attraction, through your positive thoughts, you can gain positive things for yourself. You can send out these good vibrations into the universe and these good vibrations will come back to you and you will manifest some positive reality. Behind that idea is really Eastern religion and the idea that you are a God and you can create reality through your thoughts. Very popular today. None of that, Paul says, has its place in the Christian's life because Christ is sufficient. Christ is all you need. Christ will give you the hope. Christ will give you the power. Christ will give you the salvation. Those things are idols. Don't look to the created things. Look to the Creator. Look to Christ. He is Lord of all. And so, Paul reminds us here of the greatness of the person of Christ. And I wonder if you, like me, need an increased sense of the greatness of Christ, of His person. We can ask the Holy Spirit to open our spiritual eyes to see more of the greatness of Christ so we will not be tempted to deviate. The greatness of His person. And then the greatness of His work. In the second part of this, or as we get down to the bottom of this first paragraph, he talks about the greatness of the work of Christ. And that can be summarized here in one word. Reconciliation. Reconciliation. He says it twice. Through Him, He reconciled to Himself all things. He says it in verse 22. We are now reconciled through the body of Christ, in His body of flesh by His death. What does reconciliation mean? Reconciliation means the restoration of a good relationship between enemies. Those who are enemies are brought together in a good relationship. And that's what Christ has done. And that's what the scripture teaches. That before Christ, before we put our faith in Christ and receive what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We were enemies of God. We were at odds with God. Jesus says in John 3 that this is the judgment. This is God's judgment on the world. That the light has come, but men love darkness rather than light. 
They don't want their deeds to be exposed, so they stay in the cover of darkness, even though the light of Christ has come. There's a resistance to that light, Jesus says, because their deeds were evil. And, and this is John 3, so just before he said that, he said this verse that is beloved, and rightly so. God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish. There's the love of God extended to the world. But there's also resistance from the world. There's a resistance in the heart of humanity towards God because we love the darkness rather than the light. It's like one time one of my kids was, came into the dining room and there was, I think this was probably Sam. I'm going to blame it on Sam. It's easy to do. Come into the living room and there under the table is Sam. And he's making a mess of things. He's got food all over the place and, and he's just having a, a grand old time with food and, and making a mess. And I come in and he must have seen the look on my face. And he said, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Just proceed on and pretend like you don't see what's happening. He didn't want to be exposed. He knew it was wrong. He wanted to enjoy what he was doing. That's how it is. With us and God and our sin. There's this enmity. There's this distancing. What breaks that? What is it that reconciles us to God? It's the cross of Christ. It's the love of God revealed at the cross. It is the cross. It is the shed blood of Jesus who says, Yes, I see that you have sinned and that you are lost. But I've done this. Because I love you and I want to be at peace with you. He makes peace with sinners through the cross. The cross satisfies God's just demand. So that we can be at peace with Him. The love of the cross softens our heart towards God. And fills us with love for Him. And some people say, and I remember reading a debate between a Christian and a Muslim, and the Muslim was saying, well, how is this possible? How is it that the cross has such an effect that when we stand before God, He will see us, as Paul says here, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, He will see us as, verse 22, the end of that, holy blameless and above reproach. There will be no room for accusation for those who have put their faith in what God has done for them in Jesus Christ when you stand before God. How is it, you say? Do you know what I've done? Do you know how I've been unholy and impure? How can I stand before a holy and blameless God? And the Muslim was saying to the Christian that that's just not fair. Islam, he said, is fair. In Islam, um, you go to the judgment of God and you hope that your good deeds are, are outweigh your bad deeds. And that's fair. But he said, in Christianity, you're saying that the, the death of one man can pay for the sins of the whole world, of those who put their faith in this man. That's like, he said, the Muslim said, that's like saying you're going to pay off a billion dollars worth of debt with one dollar. So it's not fair, I reject it, the Muslim said. 
The Christian said, no, wait a second, you've got the wrong analogy. You're thinking about this wrong. He said, the Christian gospel is more like this. Uh, a son steals from his father's business. The son feels guilty over time about stealing from his father's business and goes to his father and confesses what he's done. The father forgives him. But still, somebody's got to take a hit. Things have been stolen. There's a loss here. And the father pays for the loss. The father himself has every right to pay for the loss. And he said, that's how it is with God. We are God's children. We have sinned against Him. But God Himself, out of love, forgives us and He pays the debt. Pays it at the cross. And it's not like one dollar paying off a billion dollars because the person who died for the sin is the Son of God. He is, as Paul says, fully divine. And the life of God is more precious than, more valuable than all the life of the universe combined. It is the very life of God. It's like paying off a billion dollars worth of debt from an infinite bank account, the Christian said. The work of Christ is so great because He is so great. Fully God, fully man, gave His life, shed His blood so that we can be pardoned. Are you trusting in the sacrifice of Christ? Have you trusted in the cross for peace with God? Are you trusting in this today? Are you continuing to trust in what God has done for you at the cross? Will you teach others to look to Christ alone for their hope and for their peace with God? Will you pass this message on to your children and your grandchildren and your friends? Will you show people the greatness of Christ and what He's done? Well, in this last verse, in verse 23, Paul says, and here again is the motivation. Here is why he's bringing out the greatness of Christ, who He is and what He's done. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Continue on in this faith. God will preserve His saints by His grace. He will bring them home. But the saints that come home are the ones who per persevere. And they persevere by looking to Christ. By gaining spiritual strength. Remember, Paul begins this chapter by praying for the Ephesians that they would have strength. How do we hang on? We look to Christ and we pray for strength. We're not to shift away. That word shift there, excuse me, that word steadfast, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope. The word steadfast could be translated settled. And it has the picture, I thought this was interesting, it has the picture of sitting down in a chair that's very stable. That's where it originally came from. You know, you can sit down in a chair on, on a on unlevel ground on a hill or something in a ratty old camping chair or something like that that could fall over easily or you can sit down in a chair that's anchored into concrete like when you sit down at a stadium that chair's not going anywhere that's not going to be easily toppled over and that's what he's saying I want you to have that kind of settled faith as you look to Christ and not shift away from it from the hope 
of the gospel that you heard. And so, brothers and sisters, as you remember the greatness of the person of Christ and the greatness of His work, reconciliation, as you go through trial and temptation that will test you to shift away from the hope that God has given you in Jesus Christ, pray for the strength and the grace that you need to remain steadfast. And pray that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart to reveal to you more and more the greatness of Christ. His name. Amen. Lord, I do pray that you help us to reflect in a deeper way as we go through this week and throughout our life on your greatness. We thank you for your person and your work. We thank you for these words that were written so long ago, but speak to us today. And pray that we would, in the midst of trial and temptation, and so many alternative ways of spirituality, recognize that you alone are God, and that you are sufficient for everything we need. Help us to grow in this, I pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, I invite you.